we made, uh, based upon recommendation uh, of several people here, including Matt and Rachel Chisholm, our very first trip into Frankenmuth uh, yesterday. And I had a really interesting experience there because Frankenmuth brought to my mind my first mission trip uh, that I took years ago. My first mission trip was to Mexico, to Cancun, not out where the hotels are and where all of the Americans go, but to what the missionaries refer to as the real Cancun, which is a pretty difficult city. And uh, people would ask us where we were from, and we would say Kentucky, and they would immediately respond, oh, Kentucky pollo fritas, uh, which is Kentucky fried chicken. Uh, which is all over the world. And so we would get used to being just people would see us after they knew where we were from and they wouldn't use our names. They would always say Kentucky boy fritas to us. And I was thinking about that in Frankenmuth yesterday because the reality is in Kentucky, you will be hard pressed to find anybody who's actually a fan of KFC. We do not, we do not boast about Kentucky fried chicken, but we do boast about fried chicken. And there are lots of local restaurants that make really excellent fried chicken and lots of uh, home cooks who boast about their fried chicken. And I'm going to have to disappoint them when I go back because we stumbled into, I was going to say a little place, but you guys probably know it. It's Umanga Zenders <laughs> yesterday. And so now whenever I'm south of the Mason-Dixon line, I'm going to have to be truthful and say, no, the best fried chicken is really in a German Bavarian town named Frankenmuth in the thumb of Michigan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it was, uh, it was quite the experience, but it really was genuinely finger licking good chicken uh, there yesterday. My wife and I were like, we will remember this meal for a long, long time to come. So uh, we're going to dig into chapter three in Ephesians this morning. Uh, a fella asked me yesterday if I was going to do any Q&A time this week, and I had thought I would have 10 or 15 minutes to do that at the end of each morning, but I haven't so far. Uh, so I think tomorrow morning, the, what we're going to cover in chapter four, we'll be able to spend some time to do some questions and answers uh, at the end. I want to do that tomorrow because Friday, uh, as we cover the last little bit of the book, will take a little bit longer as we deal with uh, chapter five, especially with marriage and ch child raising and, and then what to do with that whole slaves and masters passage uh, in chapter five. So. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about chapter three. The first half of chapter three is really a continuation of what we were doing the, the second half of chapter two, okay? Uh, and so Paul began yesterday in chapter two talking about how Jews and Gentiles, the two most different groups of people uh, in the known world at that time, have been brought together in union, in peace, in Christ, and how so long as they stay focused in Christ, they can be together in one unified community, giving witness to the world of what is possible in Jesus Christ, and how he can bring very, very different people, very, very much together to give witness to him. And so chapter three is a continuation of that. But I want to begin this morning uh, by asking you to take just a minute, and I'm going to time this so we make sure we're at just a minute. Um, I want you to share with someone next to you, and this may be hard, like some of you have gone to church all your life, so this may be a difficult question to answer, uh, but I find amongst younger generations, it's actually a pretty easy question for them to answer. Uh, and I, I deal a lot with, in Wilmore, we have a lot of university students. As I mentioned the other day, it's connection to some un Asbury University students is our connection to Bayshore. And um, we get a lot of seminary students who are under 30, and um, they can answer this question pretty easily, actually, because of the culture they're being raised in. But um, 
what would it take to make you not quiet the church, but sorry about that. What would it, what would it take to make you quit the church? Now, not just your local church, but what would it make you just to quit the church altogether to say, I'm not going to this church again. I'm not darkening the doorstep of another church again. Now, some of you may have to think kind of hard about that, but be honest as you think about it, because there may be something that would really make it difficult for you to continue to do the church. So we'll take just a minute. And if you'll share with somebody next to you, something that you think might cause you to do that. So what about, um, what about this? Would you consider, would you consider quitting the church altogether if the pastor that you had was the most influential pastor that you had ever had? It was the pastor that had led you to the faith, who had started the church that you're a part of. What if that pastor, still involved in your life, was suddenly thrown in jail, not because he had violated the law, but simply because he was talking about Jesus. And what if that meant that there was very much the possibility that if you kept doing this whole church thing, you would go the way that he was going to go? And I think that there would be some of us, if we were honest, and myself included, if that happened to me, I would have to be thinking, am I going to keep doing this? Am I going to keep doing this church thing if every other pastor in my town were tossed in jail and I was waiting for my time to come? Would I keep doing this? A part of me wants to go, of course I would. But then we remember Peter was so bound and determined that he would follow Jesus no matter what. And he learned really quick he couldn't be as confident in himself as he thought he was. And I asked this question because this was a real live question for this little group of 30 to 50 Jesus followers in Ephesus. And Paul gets at this in chapter 3, because at the beginning and end of chapter 3, Paul indicates, and they would have known this, it's the first hint that we really get it in reading the letter, Paul indicates that he is in prison when he's writing this letter. Now, Paul was in prison numerous times, but most likely the imprisonment from from which he's writing to the Ephesians is his final imprisonment, the one in Rome uh, that led most likely to his death. Now, there are some people who think that Paul, some of the traditions say that Paul actually got out of his imprisonment in Rome and went on to Spain to spread the gospel in Spain. Uh, But most scholars would think that's actually not accurate, that that's more legend than it is anything else. So Paul's life probably ended in Rome. And so he's writing to the Ephesians from a either a Roman jail cell or under house arrest, more likely house arrest. But if you were under house arrest, that meant you were locked up in a home and and the government didn't take care of you you if they put you under house arrest or put you in jail. Lots of people starved to death in jail if they didn't have people who were willing to bring them bring them food. They would go naked if they didn't have family members or friends willing to bring them clothes. And so Paul under house arrest is reliant upon the goodwill of other followers of Jesus to bring him the stuff he needs to survive. But those people are probably thinking to themselves, if we associate with Paul... We might end up in prison, and then who's going to take care of us? So that would have been the situation in Rome. And Paul writes to the Ephesians, and in chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, For I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, Paul will sometimes refer to himself as a slave of Jesus. 
he'll sometimes refer to himself as a prisoner of Jesus, and he means it metaphorically, that he's given his life to Jesus, that Jesus is his master, that Jesus is his Lord. But in this case, when he says that he is a prisoner of Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, he literally means he is a prisoner. And the reason he has been put in prison is because he has insisted on taking the good news of Jesus to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. Then at the end of this section, chapter 3, verses 1 through uh, 10, he uh, says, or 1 through 13, toward the end he says, for I, uh, he says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you. This is Paul saying to the Ephesians, I know that you are scared to death. I know that you are scared to death that because they've thrown me in prison for telling people like you about Jesus that they are going to throw you guys in prison for following Jesus too. But I am asking you not to be discouraged because of what is happening to me for your sake. Do not be discouraged. Now, doesn't this strike you as kind of amazing that Paul is in prison for sharing about Jesus with Gentiles? And we don't have any sense that he would have done anything else than what he had done. We have any sense that he wouldn't have gone back and done the same thing all over again that he did to get himself tossed in prison in Rome. It's a sense that he would just do it all over again. Now, Paul was very much a type A personality. Okay, uh, Paul was a go-getter. Uh, when Dr. Geyerson described Paul last night as a little five-foot, you know, kind of don't mess with him kind of guy, I think that's probably pretty accurate to who Paul was. I don't think he was a violent man, but necessarily, uh, or would have been. But I do think, in a battle of wits, he could probably nail just about any of us. And he was willing to scrap and battle and fight. And uh, but he wasn't perfect. He wasn't Jesus. And so I think there must have been times in prison when Paul wrestled within himself. Because there must have been times when he thought to himself, you know, all I have to really do to get out of here is, is renounce Jesus. I could promise them that I'll renounce Jesus and I'll actually go out and disband all of the churches that I've started. And they'll probably let me out of here. But then I think a second thought caught Paul. And, and this, is, this is my imagination about it. But I do think a second thought caught Paul. I, I think uh, Paul thought, I could do that. But then I think he, he, was, he was disturbed by a question. And I think the question that probably disturbed him was something like this, or the statement. I think he would have then, let me get back there just a minute. I think the question that disturbed Paul as he was thinking about, I could recant all of this and get and, and, and just get out of here and disband churches. But then I think he would ask himself this question. If I do that and I disband all of these little churches all across the Roman Empire, how will anybody in the world know about the goodness of the kingdom of God in Jesus? And I think for Paul, the notion of a world where people could not hear about the goodness of the kingdom of God that's available to them in a relationship with Jesus Christ was a far worse option than being in prison and dying for telling people because he insisted upon telling people about Jesus. Now, this in our culture is quite a different way of thinking about the church because we tend to think of the church as inconsequential. 
We tend to think of the church as unimportant. As we are in these, these first years of the 21st century, we know that the church is on a trajectory, barring a great revival movement of God, the church is on a trajectory to become much smaller than it was, to look 20, 40 years from now much more like the little churches in the first century looked. We know we're on that trajectory and so it's easy for us to think the same way about the church, to think, well, I could just give up on this. This is just a little inconsequential thing. It's not any big deal. But Paul would look at us and say when we're thinking that, oh, no, you can't think about the church that way. You cannot think about your church like that. Even if you think it's just a piddling, no-nothing group of people who have no influence in the world, you can't think about your church like that. And so what I want to do with this first, first section of chapter 3 is, um, well, by the way, I think this is how Paul thought of the church. Paul thought of the church as a life-changing, culture-shaping, evil-breaking, Jesus-following community right at the center of God's grand plan for the redemption of all things. Now, you may not think that way about your little local church, but Paul would say, I see something about your church that you might not see. Eugene Peterson, in his great book on the, uh, called Practicing Resurrection on the letter to the Ephesians, and I was sharing this with somebody the other day uh, on Monday who was, was mentioning something about this to me. Eugene Peterson says, Ephesians is about the church you never see, but the church God always sees. And so Paul is telling us here that the church is pretty consequential. Now, what I want to do this morning is think about this passage under sort of the rubric or, or this topic. And that is that the church today, the church as you know it right now, with all of its ugly and all of its warts and all of its difficulties and all of its problems, the church today is actually the fulfillment of yesterday's promises, and it is the beacon of tomorrow's hope. So your local church is planted right at the center of God's plan right now. Your local church is an expression of all of the promises that God has made in the past, and it is right now a beacon of all of the promises that God is yet to fulfill in the future. And so I want to consider this passage just uh, uh, under that topic. And let's talk about yesterday's promises. And so you will remember that there are lots of promises in the Old Testament. Now, there are those people who've counted up all the promises, and they'll tell you there are X number of promises in Scripture. I don't know how many they are. I've never undertaken to take account of them, but I know that there are a lot. But there is amongst all of these promises in Scripture a granddaddy promise, the promise of all promises. And the granddaddy promise is the promise God made to Abraham, okay? And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, I will bless you, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God chooses Abraham. The world has gone awry. God selects Abraham and says, Abraham, you're the guy through whom I'm going to try to undo or correct everything that's gone wrong in the world. And so I'm going to do this through, by giving you a nation, and your nation will become a blessing to all of the other nations. Now, this promise is at the core of the existence of the people of Israel. This is why they were created. And when Israel has forgotten that this is why they were created, it is when God has been greatly displeased with the people of Israel. But the whole of the rest of the Bible is the working out of the fulfilling of this single promise. 
It's a big, big promise, and it shapes all of the other promises that we find in the Old Testament. Then there's another famous promise to Moses in Deuteronomy 11, 8 through 9, and we're not going to turn there, but that's where God makes a promise to Moses that there will be a prophet even greater than you who will arise to lead the people of Abraham into their glory. Then uh, another promise is uh, the one that is... um, let me go back there. Then the, another promise is the one that was made to David in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16. And if you remember, this is the passage, the famous passage where, uh, where God says to David, I will give you a descendant who will sit on your throne. And then he adds the word forever. There will be a descendant on your throne forever, a king of Israel who will finally lead Israel into the glory and the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now, over time, this promise morphed amongst the people of Israel. All right. And and it's important for us to understand how this promise morphed. So it came, they came to believe that these promises of God would be fulfilled in a very specific way. And so they they came to develop, the people of Israel did a firm conviction that God would send a great royal military leader who would conquer all of Israel's enemies and make all other nations subservient to Israel. This was the primary way that they saw this being fulfilled. The ancient promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is going to be fulfilled in God finally sending a military political leader to the nation of Israel who will defeat all of the other nations so that all of the other nations bow down from bow down before Israel and Israel rules the world. And we see, we see some of this in Isaiah the prophet. So for example, Isaiah in chapter 49, 6 through 7 says it this way. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Kings, get this, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Do you see the imagery there is of all of the other nations bowing down before the nation of Israel? And paying homage to the, and so this is how they tended to see the promise being fulfilled. Here's what they could not have seen. By the way, let me add to this this is the way Paul would have believed before he became a follower of Jesus that the promise was to be fulfilled. Paul is described for us, self describes himself as a zealous Pharisee. Now, zealous is not a word we use very often today. But zealous is someone who is typically willing to resort to any measure to enforce what they believe upon others. And we see how zealous Paul was when he said about persecuting the church. He believed what he believed so strongly that he was willing to resort to some degree of violence and imprisonment and persecution to do away with the people he believed were enemies of what he believed. And so Paul, like, 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 perhaps like Abraham, perhaps like Moses, definitely like King David, definitely like Isaiah, had some sort of idea that this great promise would be fulfilled in a military, royal, political leader who would defeat all the nations of the world. Here's what they could never have foreseen. It's what Moses couldn't have foreseen, what Abraham couldn't have foreseen, what David could not have foreseen, what Isaiah kind of saw in the direction of, but couldn't exactly have seen. It is what Paul would have, could not have seen, was that the promise would actually be fulfilled this way, that there would be a baby born to an unknown woman conceived by the Holy Spirit. 
in circumstances that everybody in that community questioned because they knew that the mama and the daddy were not yet married. They could never have foreseen that the promise would be fulfilled in an audacious, godly carpenter with no training who could teach with authority like they had never heard anyone teach with before. It's easy to teach the scriptures with, a, with real authority when you wrote them, and, and that sort of lies behind what Jesus could do. They never foresaw that the promise would be fulfilled in a traveling homeless teacher casting out demons and healing the sick. That was just not in there. They didn't see it that way. It's not how they thought it would be fulfilled. They never saw the promise being fulfilled in a strangely peaceable man who refused to take up arms to accomplish God's mission. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter pulls out the sword and Jesus says, you put that away. That is not how we do my work. Would have been the perfect opportunity for Jesus to have turned Peter loose because he could have escaped in the turmoil that would have been created. He said, we don't fight what is happening with violence. That's not how we fulfill the mission of God. They could never have foreseen that the promise would be fulfilled through a kangaroo court trial, a crucifixion, a death, and a burial in a borrowed tomb. That was just not what they could see. They could never have foreseen that the promise would actually be fulfilled in a resurrection and an ascension. They could never have foreseen, and this is the big one for what Paul is writing here in Ephesians. Not Moses, not Abraham, not David, not Isaiah, and not Paul himself could ever have foreseen that the fulfillment of the Genesis 12 promise would, or that the promise of Genesis 12, 1 through 3 would be fulfilled in Jews and Gentiles incorporated into a single community through Jesus Christ, full of the Holy Spirit, hosting the presence of God in their gatherings all over the world. That was, they just couldn't see that. And that brings us to Paul. Because Paul uses this word in Ephesians to describe how the, how the promise has finally been fulfilled. And the word Paul uses for it is he says, it was a mystery. It was a mystery. Abraham couldn't foresee it. Moses couldn't foresee it. David couldn't foresee it. Isaiah got close but couldn't foresee it. And for a long time, it was a mystery, it was a mystery to me. But then something happened to my generation, Paul would say. And Paul did consider himself to be a part of a very blessed generation. The generation that existed at the fullness of God's timing. And he says, here's, here's what happened. In reading this then, what he's writing to them, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. In other words, Paul is saying, whoa, the mystery has been revealed to us. The way that God is fulfilling those all the great promises, like none of those before us knew And for some reason, in the grace of God, we exist in the fullness of time, and now we know how all of it was being fulfilled. And can you imagine what a huge transition in thought this was for Paul, who was a zealous Pharisee, to all of a sudden think that the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel in many ways is fulfilled in little communities of Jews and Gentiles, 30 to 50 people gathering in little homes all over the Roman Empire. And this is the fulfillment of the promises right now. Not necessarily in the future, But the church exists as the fulfillment of yesterday's promises right now, today, in the present. He says in Ephesians 3, 6, the mystery, and you got to love this. Look how clearly he talks about the mystery here. The mystery is that through the gospel, 
The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body and sharers in the promise of Jesus Christ. In other words, guys, the mystery is that right now in the present age, all of the promises of God yesterday to the nation of Israel are being fulfilled in communities of Gentiles and Jews at peace with one another in Jesus, worshiping God together, sharing as heirs of all of the eternal promises of God. That's the mystery. That's the mystery. This is why this is this is why Ephesians is such an important word for the church in such a divided age. Because Paul wants the world to see in the church this mysterious fulfillment of a promise in which very very different people can move beyond their differences and be joined together in Jesus Christ. And Ephesians is such a word for us today because of this. And so, as I said earlier, the church today, that old promise to Abraham, is the fulfillment of yesterday's promises and a beacon of tomorrow's hopes. Now, before I move into the the second half of that statement, a beacon of tomorrow's hopes, if you have a Bible, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians And I want you to flip through 1 Corinthians. By the way, it is my opinion that there were two churches that Paul worked with that were more troubled than any of his other churches. One of them was in Galatia. And he starts, it's like, he skips over all the niceties almost at the beginning of that letter to get to saying, you stinking foolish Galatians. It's not not the way you win friends and influence people, but... You know, Paul was going straight after it because he felt like they were getting into such dangerous territory. But even more troubled than the church in Galatia, in my opinion, was the church in Corinth. And from beginning to end, Paul is addressing one issue after another in the church in Corinth. So what I want you to do, and I'm going to give you just about two minutes to do this, I want you to flip through the chapter headings in the book of Corinthians and just try to acquaint yourself with what the different problems in that church were because they had a ton of problems. All right, so somebody want to call out a couple that or one or one that stuck out to you just call them out really loud. 3-1 not lived by the spirit. Yep. Somebody else one that stuck out to you? Lawsuits among believers. Division in the church. Fighting over leadership. Incest and sexual immorality. Marriage. Lawsuits. Lawsuits. Did you hone in on the issues between Jews and Gentiles? It's that bit about food sacrifice to idols. It's a huge issue between the Jews and the Gentiles in that congregation. Listen, Corinth will either make you feel really good about your church one way or the other. Because on one side, it might make you go, wow, our church is more put together than I thought it was. On the other hand, it might make you go, good, our church is just like a first century church and had all the same problems. One of the things I have found is that in churches where people are coming to Christ for the first time, those churches will experience a lot more of the problems that were experienced in Corinth because people are trying to learn the faith. And they're coming out of an old culture. So sometimes we think that churches that have these problems are really bad churches. Sometimes it just means that they're a church that's making a lot of new believers. And listen, we've had some new believers at our church over the last few years, and I've had to help a lot of them through struggles with the pandemic. Just let me tell you, they have a lot of rough edges that God still has to sand down. 
and I have dealt with issues over the last last six months to a year that look a lot like some of these Corinthian issues amongst the newer believers in our congregation. And then sometimes uh, more seasoned believers who just weren't living out the faith or had difficulty living it out who landed up in situations like some of these things. Now, I, I mention this because I want you to be attuned to this fact. Paul is not ever saying that the church doesn't have issues. One of the mistakes young pastors make is they read the book of Acts and they think that being a pastor will be just like the book of Acts. That things will just grow and explode and it's going to be boom, 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 boom. Then they actually get into a congregation and realize, if, they, if they're lucky, they realize they should have paid more attention to Paul's letters in tandem with the book of Acts, because Paul, if they would have read him closely, tells them what they're really in for when they go into a local church. And so Acts is sort of the big picture, right? It's the grand retelling of the history of the church, and then Paul's letters are the nuts and bolts of how it actually worked out on the ground, individually, in, loca in different locations. And it looks, a, it looks a lot, lot different. And the reason I point this out is because as we talk about the church being a beacon of tomorrow's hopes, it doesn't mean that churches don't have problems. Churches will have problems so long as there are people in churches, and without people, you can't have churches, okay? So even churches with what we might say are the most sanctified followers of Jesus have issues because we, we have this sin problem that God is working through in all of us right? Remember we talked yesterday about come thou fount of every blessing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And that, that resides in all of us in some measure. So let me talk about tomorrow's hopes. In Ephesians 3, 4 through 5, Paul says this, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his great pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect. Actually, this goes back to 1, 9. I want to do the theme statement just to remind you of that. Sorry about that, guys. This is Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his great pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, the summing up of all things in Christ. So what is the great promise that we're still waiting for. It's what we talked about on Monday morning, and we mentioned again yesterday. It is this notion that, that God will add all things up and subtract some things when Christ comes again so that everything becomes just what God intended it to be. It is the summing up of all things. That is the great promise, and that was the great, one of the great Jewish hopes. They thought it was going to happen through that political military leader, but one of their great hopes is that God would make the earth once again what the earth was supposed to be. A new heaven and a new earth as God had intended it to be when he created it in Genesis chapter 1. And so that is the promise of tomorrow. And Paul positions the church strategically as a witness to this great day of summation. Now, tomorrow's hopes. In Ephesians 3, 10 through 11, Paul says this. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to pay attention to that phrase, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The manifold wisdom of God here refers to Jesus and what God is doing on earth through Jesus. And what is God doing on earth through Jesus? Paul has taught us that God on earth in Jesus Christ is moving all things toward the day of the great summation. 
when all things will be made new in Christ. And Paul in this verse is saying that God's intent is that the church right now will declare to the spiritual powers at work in the world the manifold wisdom of God. In other words, the church as she exists right now plays a crucial role because everywhere that we exist and everywhere that we are truly following Jesus, and there are many churches today that do not truly follow Jesus, but everywhere that there is a church that is truly and steadfastly following Jesus, that church is a target, has, is a target for the enemy. Because the enemy looks at the church and God intended it this way. The enemy looks at the church And in the church, the enemy sees a sure sign of what will happen to him and his minions on the day of the great summation. And so the enemy has a vested interest in destroying churches because churches declare to the world what is coming and what is possible in Jesus Christ. And so the church in Paul's way of thinking becomes a beacon of tomorrow's hopes. And the enemy comes after a church that is a beacon of tomorrow's hopes. I love the story in Acts 19, which is a story, if you'll turn with me there, of the church in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19. So, um... Paul shows up at the church in Ephesus and he discovers that the church in Ephesus, he didn't plant the Ephesian church, but he becomes one of the spiritual fathers of the Ephesian church. He goes to Ephesus and he discovers that the believers in the church in Ephesus have been told about Jesus, but somehow in the teaching was left, the Holy Spirit was left out. And so Paul teaches them about the Holy Spirit. And as soon as he teaches them about the Holy Spirit, all heaven breaks loose And they are all baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we have one of these unique Pentecost-type settings that happens again, where apparently tons of people in the city of Ephesus come to Christ. Now, the church would have probably declined in size to be back down 30, 50, 75 people later on. But at this point in time, there there are enough people coming to Christ in the city of Ephesus (laughs) that it upsets the local economy. Because key to the local marketplace in Ephesus were the selling of little idols, of Artemis, the goddess, of different gods that were being worshipped. And all of a sudden, there are enough people who have become interested in Jesus that they stop buying the idols. And you'll often see the same thing in places where vast numbers of people come to Christ very quickly. You'll all of a sudden see oftentimes that pornography stores and casinos go out of business. And there'll be a reaction on the part of those typically mafia-run businesses because pornography shops and and gambling is typically mafia-related business. There'll be a reaction against local church leaders. Same thing happened here in Ephesus when they stopped buying idols. And some of the people who make the idols, their, their, their consortium of businesses get really upset. And they go after the church. Well, why did they go after the church in Ephesus? Because the church in Ephesus was a witness to what was possible in God and what was coming on the day of the great summation. That there might be a day when nobody's worshiping the emperor and nobody's worshiping Artemis and nobody's going to orgiastic dinner parties and nobody's going into bathhouses. But everybody is living in peace with one another, bowing down before the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so the businessmen in the city of Ephesus become unwittingly instruments of the enemy in moving against the church. Because this church in Ephesus is the fulfillment of yesterday's promises today, and it's a beacon of the fulfillment of tomorrow's hopes today. Now, I want to... This is uh, why Paul later in Ephesians, because the church is in such a pivotal place. The fulfillment of yesterday's promises right now, the beacon of tomorrow's hope right now, that we occupy a really pivotal place in the plan of God. And this is why Paul later, and we'll talk about this on Friday, has to tell the believers in Ephesus, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Because the devil comes after local churches because we, ful- we, we fulfill yesterday's promises and are a beacon of tomorrow's hopes. I want to tell you just a quick story about a um, South African uh, pastor. His, uh, it was an Anglican, Church of England. His name was uh, Donald Lamont. Uh, these days, and I hope this is not offensive to anybody here who might be out of the Episcopalian or Church of England traditions, uh, these days the Church of England is much different than it was 40 or 50 years ago. Um, now, in the United States, uh, most, of our, most of our churches that would be related to the Church of England are Episcopal churches, Episcopalian churches, or as we call them in central Kentucky, Whiskeypalians. Um, and uh, um, they... Uh, but there's a there's a resurgence of Anglicanism that is very evangelical and very orthodox in the United States called the Anglican Church in North America. It's actually one of the most successful church planting movements in the United States right now. And so I want to be careful about that. Donald Lamont was came out of the Anglican tradition at a time when it was still very, very orthodox and still very, very steadfast. And there are some Anglican churches that are still like that, uh, including uh, St. Helens Bishopgate in London and Trinity Church in Brompton in London, which is where, if you've heard of the Alpha Course, is where the Alpha Course emerges from. It's amazing that the Church of England has given us one of the most effective evangelism tools of the last 50 years. But anyway, Donald Lamont was a, a, an Anglican pastor in South Africa or not South Africa, sorry, in uh, Zimbabwe, which at the time was called Rhodesia because it was under British colonial rule. And as Rhodesia attempted to break out from under uh, British colonial rule, there was a lot of guerrilla warfare that would go on. And the, the, the British government in Rhodesia would go to these Anglican pastors and they would expect the Anglican pastors to turn over any native Zimbabweans uh, who were they thought were a part of the, the move against the government. And Donald Lamont refused to do that. He refused time and time and time again in the 1970s to turn over members of his congregation that were being accused of guerrilla tactics and guerrilla warfare against the oppression of the British government. They finally arrested Donald Lamont and put him in prison. And at his trial, he, um, he said something that really gets at the role the church plays in the world. And I really love the courage in what he said here. He told the judge this. The church has been in existence for nearly 2,000 years. Tyrants and others have acted against Christians during those years. They have arrested them. They have killed them. They have proscribed the faith or taken the faith over for their own advantage. Those tyrants belong now to the flotsam and jetsam of forgotten history. That's the stuff that floats on the top of water. 
to the flotsam and jetsam of forgotten history. And the church of God remains an agent of justice, peace, love, and reconciliation. I love this line. If they take on the South African Council of Churches, let them just know they are taking on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so be strong in the Lord Jesus Christ and put on the armor of God. Now I want to shift to the second half of chapter three. And I want to start by talking about a word, the word vigor or vigorous. And here's what vigor means. Vigor is active bodily or mental strength or force. It's active, healthy, or well-balanced growth. It is intensity of action or effect on something as in being a force in the world or a force on something else. So with that definition in mind, here's a question I want you to discuss for one minute with the folks around you. What does a vigorous church look like? If a church is vigorous, if it's an active force in the world for Jesus Christ, what does that kind of church look like? What's one characteristic of it that you would say? Just share that with somebody next to you. So let's, um, let's recall in verses 1 and 10 of chapter 3 again that Paul has reminded them of his imprisonment, something of which they were well aware. And then he has shared in verse 10 with us his concern that they are becoming discouraged. This is concerning to Paul because a discouraged church cannot be a vigorous church. A church that is vigorous has to have a proper understanding of its role in the world, and it cannot be discouraged about itself. The church that I pastor, I've been there for 16 years and plan on, God willing, being there till I retire, um, had come through a really rough period when I came, and the rough period continued for another two or three years after I was there. It's only by the grace of God that I managed to, and I mean that, only by the grace of God that my wife and I managed to stick it out, because it was, it was a mess, the senior pastor uh, had left uh, in a bit of a difficult situation. He had not done anything immoral. There was just a lot of leadership disagreement and the, the church declined. And one night, I was just really struggling with how to pastor, pastor this church. And uh, I was uh, sharing with, oh, I can't remember your name. Yeah. Justin, I was sharing, Justin, Justin and I uh, were sharing some commonalities this morning because he's got almost, a, he's got some of an MDiv and an MA in counseling, and I have some of an MDiv and an MA in counseling uh, from seminary. And um, when I, um, I was praying one night in the front room of our, the house we lived in at the time about the church, and, and I had this revelation from the Lord. And one of, the, one of the techniques of counseling that's used pretty prominently is called narrative counseling, which means you've got a bad story. You're telling yourself a bad story about your life and a story that keeps your patterns going. And, and I felt like the Lord said, Jason, not only do individuals have bad narratives, but churches have bad narratives too. Churches corporately can come to believe very negative things about themselves. In the church I was pastoring at the time, the pastor in his last few years, every new book that came out on how to grow a church he read and the church's ministry style changed from month to month. One of the professors at the seminary who's a mentor of mine said, Jason, we sometimes would giggle that they were trying something new at Great Commission Fellowship this month and it'd be something different next month. And the church developed a discouraging narrative. They believed that nothing they tried worked. They couldn't be successful at anything, and so they became discouraged, and it was a narrative that was really difficult for the church, and so we dug into the work of helping the church develop a new narrative. For us, the narrative was around developing a strong sense of community and grace in community, and so Paul is concerned about the same thing here. 
that this church is getting discouraged and it's getting a bad narrative and a narrative that will keep it from being a vigorous church in the world. So what Paul is going to do in the remainder of this chapter is tell this church how he's praying for it. And Paul is going to share with the church, he doesn't just say, I'm praying. He tells them exactly what he's praying, I think in hopes that the church will begin to pray this for themselves, because he doesn't want them to be discouraged. This is how he's praying for them to be a vigorous church, a church that understands itself well, understands its role in the world, is loyal and dedicated to Jesus, and is going to be the fulfillment of yesterday's promises, and most importantly, a beacon of tomorrow's hopes in the world. So he starts out this way. Let me get back there. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth has its name. So let me just mention the word kneel. The early Jews and Christians actually did not kneel very often to pray because Jews did not kneel very often to pray. So the early Christians, being so influenced by Judaism, because leaders like Paul were the initial leaders, Peter and Paul and James were Jewish, they actually didn't kneel a lot to pray. Jews to this day, if you go to the Western Wall, do not kneel to pray. They're standing up praying. Okay, On the occasions when they would kneel, it meant that their heart was really broken over something and that they were throwing themselves sort of at the, 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 the mercy seat of God because something was weighing really heavy upon them. So Paul is saying here, I'm really concerned about you being discouraged. I'm so concerned about you being discouraged that I am kneeling. I'm throwing myself on the ground when I pray for you. That's how serious this situation can be for your church. If you're, if you're a discouraged congregation. And then this phrase, from whom every family in heaven and earth has its name. And here Paul is continuing the theme of unity. He's reminding them once again that God is the father of the, Gen the Jews and God is the father of you Gentiles, no matter what particular region or ethnicity you Gentiles have come from. God is the father of everybody on heaven and earth. As a matter of fact, he named them. Then he prays this, that you may be filled with the full measure of all the fullness of God. Now, I want to talk about those two phrases real quick, the full measure and all the fullness of God. And it's important here for us to know that the letter to Ephesians is highly connected to the letter to Colossians. When Paul wrote Ephesians, he likely used his letter to Colossians as the format or the template for writing the letter to Ephesians. So if you go home today and you read Colossians and then read Ephesians and you're paying close attention, you'll notice quite a bit of similarity between the two. Okay, so in Colossians, Paul says this, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now, the reason I point this out is because the fullness of God dwells for us in who? Dwells in Jesus. So when Paul prays that you may be filled with the full measure of all the fullness of God, what is he praying for? He is praying that this church will be full to overflowing with Jesus. Because as Colossians says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. People will ask me sometimes, what is God like? And I say, he, he's, he's, he's Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to pray? You, you want to know what, face, what God's face looks like? Pray to Jesus. Jesus is the invisible, is the image of the invisible God for us. So he's praying here that this church will be filled with Jesus. In other words, guys, you offered various definitions of a vigorous church. I overheard some of you. But a vigorous church is a church that is full of Jesus. A vigorous church is a church that when you go into it, you just are like, wow, these people in their community, this, this, this feels like Jesus. 
I'm experiencing an unearthly love in this place amongst these people. Now, he's then going to pray this. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This just reiterates what I said when he asked for the full measure of God to fill them. He is asking for Jesus to dwell in the inner being of that church, of every person in that church, and for Jesus to be at the very heart and center of the Ephesian congregation. And, uh, you know, Jesus reminds us of how important it is that we have him dwelling within us. You remember on one occasion, the Pharisees got onto Jesus' disciples because they were eating without washing their hands. Now, in Jesus's day, we actually did not know about germs until the 1860s and 1870s when they were discovered by a doctor whose name was Lister. Guess what product we got from that? Listerine. It's the first to really drive home the idea that there were germs and that you had to kill the germs when you were doing medical procedures. So I mention this because in Jesus's day, they had no concept that hand washing was tied to ridding yourself of germs. Okay, so people asked me last year, what do you think Jesus would wear a mask or wouldn't wear a mask? I said, I'm actually pretty sure Jesus wouldn't wear a mask because they didn't know what airborne pathogens were. Okay, so and that was my way to sidestep the issue a little bit, too. But anyway, um, and I also felt like I had bigger fish to fry than whether or not Jesus would have worn a mask or not. Like there, there are people dying without Jesus. I've got a few bigger fish to fry than that. Uh, but uh, uh, anyway. Jesus then says this to these Pharisees who've accused him. By the way, the, the hand washing for them was ritual. To not, to not wash your hands was disrespectful of God who had given you the food. Okay? And Jesus says this to them. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Now, I mention this because when you think about a discouraged church, I'm not saying discouragement is a sin. Indeed, it is not. For many people, discouragement and depression are entirely genetic and physiological. But if a church is discouraged, do you know what will come out of that church? Discouragement. That's just a fact. If your church is discouraged with itself, what you will put out in the world, whether you like it or not, is discouragement. And if that's what you're putting out, people can't experience the vigorousness of Jesus in your fellowship. Just won't work. So here's what he says next. It says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love. And notice how he's going to tie. They are rooted and established in love. Well, what does that mean? That means they're rooted and established in Jesus because Jesus is the full image of the invisible God, the love of God for us on earth. Then he's going to pray... Uh, let me skip that. And then he's going to pray this, that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep and to know the love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. Now, I want to, I want to reflect on this just a minute because here's what I think Paul is praying for right here. Paul is praying for the Ephesian church to have their minds blown. To have their minds blown by what? He's praying for them to have their minds blown by the love of God in Jesus Christ. Now, 
And that comes just from the part to know the love that surpasses knowledge. That there is a love, the love of God in Jesus Christ, that you and I can never understand if we are only trying to get at it with the old bean. Now, there's a lot we can say about the love of God for us in Jesus Christ that we hope can be grasped by the mind alone. Paul has done this back in chapter 1 when he talked about how they were chosen in Jesus, and he uses all those words like rich, extravagant, lavish about the grace of God. So you can talk about Jesus, you can talk about the death of Jesus, the epitome, the, 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 the epitome expression of God's love for us. But the reality is, guys, that every person who's come to an understanding of the love of Jesus has not come to it on their own. It has been given to them. And that's why Paul says, I pray that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep to know the love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. In other words, your church can't be vigorous. You can't even be a vigorous follower of Jesus if your mind has never been blown by the power of God in Jesus Christ so that you become overwhelmed with a love that you can't get your mind wrapped around. That the only way to know that love is to be swamped in it and overwhelmed by it. And at some point to be able to say, I can't fully explain it to you, but I am loved by God in Jesus Christ in ways that my mind doesn't understand. That I struggle for words to say it to you. And so Paul is praying for a mind-blown church. A vigorous church has to be a church whose mind is blown by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and the love of God in Jesus Christ. And if a church, is, if a church does not have its mind blown by the love of God in Jesus Christ, it will spew out almost anything but the love of Jesus. Churches have to be taken with Jesus, enamored with Jesus, overwhelmed with Jesus, overflowing with Jesus. And so you literally want your church to be a mind-blown church. You want your church to be a place where people are going, I can't explain it. Except to say that the Holy Spirit came to me and taught me something my mind can't understand. And it is the overwhelming, lavish, extravagant love of God for me and Jesus Christ. And everything about my life now is just, I want it to be just an overflowing of the love of God for the world. The same love that he has shown in Jesus Christ. I'm a holiness person too. Dr. Geiertsen has mentioned that several times. Many of you are as well, especially you come out of the EUB tradition. You know, I, maybe the Methodists will give you guys your denomination back soon. <laughs> I mean that tongue in cheek, tongue in cheek. <laughs> too soon. <laughs> but what's the, what's the message of sanctification? Sanctification is being overwhelmed with the love of God. The first mark of sanctification is, uh, I love Dr. Geisel. I said, don't you smoke and don't you chew and don't you go with girls who do, because my dad used to tell me that all the time. <laughs> That's not sanctification. Sanctification is being overwhelmed with the love of God so that your heart is open to everyone. And you want to share Jesus with them and you want to embody Jesus to them. And you want everything in your life to be for the praise of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And just opens you up to that. Now, I want to finish with a story about a church that, whose mind was blown by Jesus. 
This is Timberline Church. It's located somewhere in Colorado. I read about it in a, a book I was looking at this past spring. It looks like a big church now, and it is, but it wasn't always. About 20 years ago, Timberline Church was a community of 126 people, and they were a happy church. Their website years ago, that's how they described themselves, a happy family church, and that's great. We want people to experience happy family when they come into our churches. But then over a period of a few weeks, this church was shaken to its core with the mind-blowing love of Jesus. Because one of those 126 people in that church, his name was Larry. Larry was a hairdresser and ran a salon. And many of Larry's clients in the salon were women who worked in a number of the strip joints and strip clubs located in the community where the little church was. And one day, just in a conversation, the Holy Spirit sort of settled upon Larry in the conversation. He was talking to one of these strippers. Her name was Nikki. And Larry ended up sharing with Nikki, he hadn't intended to, the story from John chapter 4 of the woman at the well. You remember the story of the woman at the well? She was a bit of a woman of the night. She'd had many men, had sort of an illicit sexual history. And Larry shared the story with Nikki of how Jesus handled that woman. It's a broken, messed up woman like Nikki. How he sort of read her mail and then gave her a hope she'd never had. Living water, as he called it. And Larry, Nikki said to Larry, I didn't know there were stories like that in there. And Larry said, you don't have a Bible? She said, no, I don't have a Bible. Larry gave her a Bible. And he said, I recommend that you read the four books that tell the story of Jesus. John, which is the one where this story came from. At least try to finish that one, but then maybe Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Later in the week on, on Saturday, this was earlier in the week, later in the week on Saturday, Larry got a call from Nikki. And Nikki said to Larry, I read it. It's like, oh, you read the Gospel of John. And Nikki said, no, I, I read it. I read the whole thing from cover to cover. And then she said, I have to go to church with you. And Larry made arrangements to take Nikki to church with him the following morning. Now, in the story, Larry says that when he went to pick Nikki up the following morning, she came out of the house not dressed for church. <laughs> because she had been a stripper. That's all she really knew. And so she basically went to church in the initial stages of a stripper's outfit. And he decided on the way that it might be best for Nikki and for the congregation if he took Nikki to set up in the little balcony in the church, which very few people, if anybody, ever sat in. So he took Nikki up to the balcony, and they'd been up there for two or three minutes when Nikki said, Larry, we have to go sit down front. So I can just tell the action is down front. When you go to a concert, Larry, the action is in the front. And before Larry could say anything, Nikki got up and walked in her stripper attire down to the front of the little church and sat in the, the very front pew, and Larry went with her. And the pastor that morning preached on the importance of letting your walls down to let God in. And he gave an altar call. And when he invited people to come to Jesus, a stripper named Nikki got up. And she went to the altar. She gave her life to Jesus. They scheduled her baptism two weeks later. Now, Nikki failed to tell the people in the church that she had invited 10 of her best friends to come to church to celebrate her baptism. So on her baptism Sunday, 10 
women dressed in stripper clothing showed up at Timberline Church to see Nikki baptized. And after Nikki was baptized, the pastor felt prompted to invite people to come to Jesus to be baptized that Sunday. And they baptized Nikki and then baptized 10 of her stripper friends who committed their lives to Jesus. The church had a meeting that week. And they said, we have to change the mission of our church. We can't be a happy family church anymore. And they changed the mission statement of their church to let love live. Because they had seen what the love of Jesus could do in Nikki and 10 strippers when their minds were blown. And the church's minds were blown by this. And they changed the whole mission of the church. And their attitude became, we don't know exactly how to do it, but we have to find more people like Nikki. And we have to provide more people like Nikki with an opportunity to, to, to come to the same thing Nikki and her friends came to. Today, Timberline Church is a church of about 5,000 people, and they defy statistics because almost half of all the members of Timberline Church didn't come from other churches. We pastors call that flock swapping. It's how most church growth actually happens in the United States these days. But Timberline Church defies that because almost 50% of the people who are members of that church walked in straight out of situations like Nikki's, broken, messed up situations, and gave their lives to Jesus. And the church just continues to be mind blown by the love of Jesus. So here's what I want to encourage you to do today. Would you take Paul's prayer from Ephesians 3, 1 through 14, or the second half, sorry, 14 through the end, whatever it is, the end of the chapter. You can tell the section heading there. Would you just pray it for your church? Just tell God, I am praying that you will blow the mind of our congregation with the love of Jesus. We want to know his surpassing love. So we've got four minutes. Anybody have a question? We can do probably one if somebody's got one. Uh, sanctification is, I, now I don't have that in my notes. That would, We'll have to chalk that up to the spirit on the spur of the moment. Um, I think I said sanctification is being overwhelmed by the love of Jesus so that you overflow with the love of Jesus. Guys, if you go all the way back to Wesley, Wesley, when you at, when you when Wesley was pressed or when he was in his writings, love was never far from him in his definition of sanctification. So it wasn't it wasn't about rules the way we tend to have let it drift in the holiness movement today. It was really about the heart in which he would say love had been shed abroad, so that it was it was just overwhelmed. Well, I'm going to pray. And actually what I'm going to pray is Paul's prayer. For this reason, we kneel before you, Father. You are the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth has derived its name. We pray that out of your glorious riches, you may strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that being rooted and established in love, that we might have power together with all your holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God.
And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we all, than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So we'll take a turn tomorrow from all of Paul's theology to the practicals of what it means to live out unity in the church. That's what chapter four is about.